This week we'll lift the lid on some new technology which identifies preventable disease and weeds in crops. That's when we go to work and we produce maps for our farmers that in the first instance tell them where in their field their problems are. Jared Bainbridge from Omega Crop explains how it all works and proposed EU rules could spell major problems for pig producers. The European Union is looking at phasing out all cages in production so this isn't just pigs it's also poultry and other areas. Dr Zoe Davis, Chief Exec of the National Pig Association, joins us shortly to explain the ramifications. And we'll talk agronomy with Sean Sparling and Kit Dickinson from Openfield Reviews the Markets. Plus, after a lovely sunny week, we'll see if it's going to continue. What does the weather have in store for us this week? The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning, hope you've had a good week and enjoyed the sunshine. I'm Steve Orchard. In the news this week, there's a boost to the apprenticeship incentive scheme that could help farmers. You can now claim £3,000 for each new apprentice hired as an employee until the end of September. There's also a traineeship programme with a cash boost available of up to £1,000. The dairy industry could be set for a reduction in volumes in response to a rise in feed costs, according to the AHDB. Margins have been under pressure, as we know, for well over a year, and the levy board's milk-to-feed price ratio is trending to the level at which milk output has historically contracted as producers review feed volumes to manage costs. And a new website's been produced by the National Pig Association, urging the public to show their support for the sector in various ways. It sets out how British pork is responsibly produced and environmentally sustainable. And you can see that website at putporkonyourfork.net. Bacon sandwich would go down the treat right now, uh, but I'll wait till the end of the programme. And staying with pigs, the NPA has raised concern that the EU may introduce new legislation, paving the way for a ban on the use of cages, including farrowing crates. Chief Exec Dr Zoe Davis joins us. Zoe, can you briefly summarise, first of all, what the proposed legislation actually says? OK, so uh, the European Union is looking at phasing out all cages in production. So this isn't just pigs, it's also poultry and other areas. So specifically for pigs in the EU, this would involve the phasing out of farrowing crates where the sow goes when she's having her babies and for them, sow stalls where the sow is when she's actually being inseminated. Now we don't have those in the UK, so the only part that would affect us Uh, is the uh, pressure to phase out farrowing crates. Well, what's actually wrong with farrowing crates? Don't they actually protect the animal? So, farrowing crate was designed many moons ago, largely to protect baby piglets when they're born, because you have a piglet that is um, quite a lot smaller than a a sow. Piglets sort of around a kilo um, versus uh, sows that can be 250, 300 kilos. So, when you're um, having animals that are giving birth indoors, it is vitally important that you protect the piglets from the sow lying down and crushing them, which is the primary reason for piglet death uh, before they're weaned. Now, um, the most important bit, though, uh, is that the sow is confined for the short five-week period that she's giving birth and and, uh, suckling her piglets. And, of course, this is where the, the main issue of the welfare groups is the sow can really only stand up, lie down, she can't turn around. Um, So it's the confinement issue. So it's a trade-off between piglet welfare 
sow welfare and also the welfare of the stock person who has to manage an animal during a time when uh, she can get actually very aggressive. Now, you said in your press release that the changes could effectively wipe out EU pig production. That's quite a statement. Yes, well, the, the reason that I said that was because they are pushing for a 2027 phase out. Now, that's only six years. That's the reason why it would be incredibly difficult for the vast majority to change, because it's not just about whipping out one system and putting in another. Uh, certainly in the UK, uh, it's about planning applications, which can take um, a couple of years to see through. Um, there's issues with you know, space on the farm because alternative systems require more space. In the UK, we only have two building manufacturers really that could do the work. Um, and they've effectively told us that to get through just the UK farms, it would take 20 to 30 years. So is that the kind of length of time that you're looking for as a, a sensible transition period? Yeah, to allow people to be able to, rather than, you know, and, and this is where we've said we don't want to ban, because when you get banned, people tend to wait right to the end to do anything about mm. it. And of course, that's, that's absolutely not going to work here because we don't have the resource available. So what are you looking for next? Is it support to help you transition or is it support to actually make this not happen in the first place? Um, I think it's inevitable that, that, that transition and change will come. Um, and I think the industry has accepted that that is the way forward. However, the first thing that we don't want is a ban. You know, we want to be able to work with government collaboratively uh, to phase out um, firing crates and provide alternatives. Uh, one of the problems is there are so many different um, types of uh, alternative out there in the market. It's actually quite difficult for us to say, well, you know, we think that this is the best or we should go down this route. What we're very clear on, though, um, is the fact that we want um, people to be able to put in what's called temporary crates, which effectively uh, are uh, pens where they have the ability um, to shut the sow into a, an enclosed space literally for the couple of days after she's given birth just to protect those piglets during that critical sort of three, four day period, but then open them out so the sow can then get up and wander around. Um, the free firing systems where there is no ability to be able to do that, we've seen in our commercial systems that already have them in the UK, piglet mortality of about 22%, which is not acceptable when you consider Standard pig mortality is, is around 10%, so it's far too high. Whereas with the temporary croating, um, you can see uh, it's around 14%, which is, isn't great, but it's far more acceptable. Thank you very much indeed, Dr Zoe Davis, Chief Exec of the National Pig Association, for joining us on the farming programme this morning. Thank you, Zoe. You're welcome. Time for our weekly walk around the fields with agronomist Sean Sparling. Morning, Sean. Looks like summer's here. Yes, good morning to you, Steve. Yes, flaming June. Well upon us now, then. Temperatures in the mid to high 20s is certainly a really welcome change for me from the cold April and that wet, horrible May that we've thankfully now got behind us, which may well, the wet may well prove to be uh, just what we needed, though, heading into this hot, dry June. Sunshine and warmth is just what the crop doctor ordered. It's certainly what these crops needed. And leaves emerging every five days or so when we're getting temperatures of 25 degrees. So spring wheat, spring barley going 
through growth stages faster than a sour plum. Linseed, potatoes, sugar beet, peas, beans, almost seeming to double in size every seven days or so. So it's very growy, it's spraying weather, the herbicides and the fungicides are working well, and crops look fantastic on the whole. So what's not to like? And I say on the whole because the legacy of that wet winter of 2019 and the resultant slumping and damage to the substructure that all of that water and especially the weight of that water did to the soil structure compacting a layer in certain fields is still very very obvious out there you can see areas on headlands in particular and wet holes as you drive around where it lay wettest where wheats barleys oats peas beans sugar beet every crop is yellow, stunted and clearly struggling. And I'm afraid that until we get some more of this hot dry weather, until we get some good crops which have decent root systems into that substructure and compacted layer, until it all cracks through a hot summer or until we can get to the point of pulling a leg through these fields and break up that compacted layer, it's not going to change an awful lot. So the horrible patches that you're seeing now are with you until we can start addressing those issues. But this weather and some good crops out there is a very very good start i'm hearing reports of yellow rust being on the move in wheats especially in varieties like zayat skyfall gleam incitor firefly kerin wolverine kinetic a big one for for yellow rust um and particularly where people cut back on the T1 in the dry conditions at the T1 timing, because yellow rust has really changed its habits. It used to be a cool, wet weather disease and hot, dry weather would dry it up. But if you've got it in your crop now, you can't expect these hot conditions that we find ourselves in at the moment to dry it up as it would have done 20 years ago. It's a very complicated disease now. Um, varietal resistance ratings on the varietal list are at best only a guide because some varieties are very susceptible at the seedling stage but are resistant later in the season varieties like Xtase and skyscraper and graham um, then we have some varieties which are susceptible right through the season um, like those i mentioned earlier in particularly kerin skyfall kinetic and some are resistant all through the season to varying degrees like siskin and saki for example so apart from seven varieties of wheat which have what's termed as season-long resistance all of the other varieties on the list should be considered as being susceptible with varying degrees of adult resistance. And that may only manifest itself very, very late on in the season. So that's why a planned robust fungicide program should be based around Septoria triticae primarily, but also yellow rust must be tailored into that. And it must be tailored to what you're seeing in the crop as you go through. Assume absolutely nothing. So speak to your advisor about the best approach and which varieties are best served to take you all the way through. But with T2 largely complete now, it's probably a bit late for that. You do still have the T3 option, of course, to dry it up should you need to do so. Wild oats and ryegrass and brome all popping up along with black grass out in the field now all over the place. In fields, I've never seen some of those weeds before in some cases. But as I keep saying, with such rapid growth in these crops, don't get caught out by missing a cutoff timing with herbicide applications and keep an eye on the label restrictions to make sure you keep not only the crop safe, but yourself legal also if your fields are absolutely spotless and completely weed free at the end of the season you've probably spent way too much any money anyway so prioritize and strategize as we should always be doing sugar beet going from strength to strength
strength. Mine varies from yet to emerge to 12 leaves, often in the same field and often in the same row. But as yet, I found absolutely no need to go out and treat for Miser's Persicae in my sugar beet. I spent several hours this week on my hands and knees searching with a hand lens. And remember, it's one wingless nymph per four plants up until the crop reaches the 12 leaf stage, by which time the plant's natural resistance starts to kick in. And that reduces the threat of further viral infestation on the crop but do keep your eyes peeled we've got Topeki and Insist available to us should we need to go but also remember Mises Persicae nymphs vary in colour from yellow through all shades of green through pink red and right through to black actually they're between one and two mil long the head has very well developed antennal tubercles and they tend to be quite sedentary and very very slow moving um, but as I say, get your hand lens out, get on your hands and knees and look for them. Um, look for them in the newer leaves, in the heart of the plant, in the folds in particular, the sheltered areas. But as I say, as yet, I've seen nothing close to needing spraying, but that can all change overnight as we've seen in previous years. So keep your eyes open and I'll keep you posted as I go. Potatoes, thundery, blighty weather now, so be ahead of that particular potato blight curve. We're seeing Smith periods and Hutton periods, in particular Hutton periods, every single day now so be on top of that job and linseed if you're using clethodim for black grass remember you can only go up to 15 centimeters tall on the crop and never ever if there are any sign of flower buds there in the crop and also remember it's got a four month or 120 day harvest interval so be aware of that because if you were to spray centurion max today it will be the middle of october before you can legally get out of that harvest interval 120 days i'm just saying be aware of it all seed rape later flowering fields are podding quite well the early flowered frost hit flowering crops are not doing so well and it's difficult to assess how well these pods are going to fill and i think it could be a simon wright year when it comes to all seed rape um, Simon was a, a client of mine who farmed at Dorrington, sadly no longer with us, but I can remember going into his office and saying, your rate looks absolutely first class, Simon. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Sean, the last time my rate looked this good, there were three seeds to a blooming pod. So it could be one of those years. Anyway, let's see what the next seven days bring. Thanks as ever, Sean. Omega Crop have developed crop modelling technology, which analyses drone-gathered images of a wheat crop to spot disease and weeds, often, they say, before a farmer or agronomist could detect the problem by eye. How does it work, and how is it different from other precision farming tech? Jared Bainbridge is the founder and CEO of Omega Crop. He's on the line now. Jared, good morning. Welcome to the farming programme. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, let's talk about Omega Crop's new technology, which uh, I understand can pick up wheat diseases. How does it actually work? So we take satellite data. Uh, we take drone data if people have that. When I say drone data, I don't mean you hire somebody to come and do that for you. I mean, if you've got a Phantom 3 that you bought off the you know, the shelf at Curry's five years ago or something, uh, that's fine. That's totally fine. Like, we will give you an autopilot mission and you can fly that in the mission, at, you can fly that in the field at your own time. So it will uh, actually work with a, with a bog-standard domestic drone that, as you say, you can get online anywhere? Yes, absolutely. We actually built it specifically with that in mind. We wanted this to be, uh, you know, accessible to people uh, as much as possible. And one of the big bottlenecks at the moment is you know, lots of our competitors will have very expensive cameras attached to very expensive drones, attached to very 
expensive pilots <laughs> to fly them, uh, and that just creates a lot of bottlenecks and hard, you know, scheduling problems uh, and costs uh, for our customers. We wanted to get around that entirely, so we built it from the ground up with ease and accessibility in mind. Okay, so you are gathering all this data, and then when you've got all this data, how does that help the farmer? What can they then do with the data, or do you present them with a solution? So we don't just take those two pieces either. We also take mobile phone data, any kind of in-ground sensor, anything you know, previous year yield data out of the combine, like anything that they've got. We will take it and it will form a layer in our analysis. That's when we go to work and we produce maps for our farmers that in the first instance tell them where in their field their problems are. So if you can imagine uh, how beneficial that is, if you have, say, you're sitting there, you've got a 100 hectare field in front of you, you know it has black grass because you can see it, right? And at the moment, you'd prefer to intervene between seasons if you can because it's more cost-effective that way and you're more likely to get a good kill on the blackgrass seeds. Uh, so you'll probably treat most, if not all, of, the, of that entire field. Uh, whereas imagine if you knew, right, that there's actually only 10 to 15 affected hectares in that field of blackgrass and you knew where they were. So imagine the cost savings that you would get from hitting only the affected areas. Right? And then imagine being able to understand the true success rate of that application because then we can monitor how successful that was and imagine the confidence that that gives you as a decision maker on your farm. And that's just on a single use case like blackgrass. So we can take that data and it's not just a pretty map for people. We can actually integrate that with your existing on-farm machinery as well. And you trialled this with AgriEpi and Cranfield University, I gather. Yeah, so we did. Uh, we've been on the satellite farm, uh, on some of the satellite farms uh, with AgriEpi, but we've also conducted a lot of in-depth research with Cranfield University as well. So what we did there uh, was we actually grew crops in a lab and then deliberately infected them with all sorts of horrible stuff like septoria, fusarium headlight, uh, black grass, uh, and then we cultivated that crop, watched those problems get worse over time. Uh, and then we now used use those findings and we use the thought leadership that came out of that uh, to diagnose and map crop loss events across the field. So is that the difference between what you do and what some of your competitors might do then? Yeah, I think that's one of the differences uh, between us and them. Another, another, there's, there's several kind of differences between us and our competition. And one, one is absolutely our technology, you know, the way we built it and what it's capable of. Because before we built anything, we walked fields with farmers and asked them, what hurts you the most each year? What would you like solved? And when we understood that, we went looking for existing pieces of technology that help people to do that. And when that didn't exist, we said, well, maybe we should look at building it. We're different in the way we approach everything. We're not some, some kids with a black box of magic technology who are out to be disruptive and affect radical changes on farms. You know, we're, we're really respectful. Uh, we recognize just how invaluable of an asset farmers and agronomists actually are. Uh, we, like, we think no one knows their fields better than they know their fields and if we could we'd clone 20 of them and have them doing nothing else but walking fields all day uh, but we can't do that uh, so instead we've created this technology that enables them to cover more of their area and be in more places at once you know we want to be that force multiplier for them we want to be that safe pair of hands that they can trust and i feel that attitude and that respect really separates us as well and the, I guess the, the, the $64,000 question, if you'll pardon the pun, is, is this an expensive piece of kit? 
No. So we're, we're, one of the things that we built this from, like because we're not sending people out on farm, right? I'm not putting somebody in a car and they're spending a day getting out to you and then flying a mission and coming back and then we have to go to work because you're capturing that data and because we capture so much from satellites and hyperlocal weather stations and the such, uh, all the cost to us, there's no labor cost involved, there's no travel cost involved for us. So we are remarkably inexpensive on farm. We're talking about you know, uh, pounds, pounds per hectare uh, total for an entire year doing things like post-emergence success, uh, very bright fertilizer application, how successful was that, doing your weed mapping, checking if there's diseases, let's look at your flag leaf, right? Like all that kind of stuff. We're talking pounds per hectare for a year. Okay. And if somebody wants to have a chat with you about this, where do they go? Yeah, they can go to uh, jared at omegacrop.com. So Jared is J-A-R-E-D, and then the rest is at omegacrop.com. Okay, Jared, thank you very much indeed for joining us. That was fascinating, and uh, good luck with the future. Thank you very much. So how have the markets behaved this week? With an update, here's Open Fields' Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. The rollercoaster ride continues on the grain market with developing weather stories being the main driver. Next week, we'll herald another USDA report, and we should remember that it was last month's report which precipitated a £20 decline on the expectation of what some might say were optimistic production prospects in some major exporting countries, which enabled them to paint a looser picture on the global grain stocks than the trade had anticipated. Fast forward a month and we have had hot, dry weather in the US Northern Plains, the Western Midwest and the Canadian Prairies. Dryness in Russia and Kazakhstan, mainly spring wheat areas. Droughts in the Middle East including Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Pakistan, all of whom are major importers and even some dryness in Germany, Poland and the Baltic States. In the meantime, the Brazilian maize crop is dropping below 90 million metric tonnes, according to two eminent analysts, pushing additional demand towards the US. Fears that China will roll the old crop maize, US maize purchases to new crop appear to be receding and they have shipped in excess of 1 million metric tonnes this week amid reports that China have also bought in an additional 1 million metric tonne of old crop Ukrainian maize, which is not a sign that demand is currently slowing down. Looking forward to barley, UK continues to progress well and the weather looks to be supportive for the next few weeks, at least this is echoed on the continent, with yields being revised slightly upward to reflect this. Markets remain quiet following a buying round recently in the last couple of weeks. Old crop markets continue to see the odd load required where quality has been an issue. New crop markets have seen values nominally weaker over the period with a lack of activity, but as yet there has been little real first-hand interest from the consumer. EU buyers have been happy to sit back with positive reports to date. All eyes will now be on the reopening schedule, noting that Scotland has chosen to delay easing in some areas, with hopes that England remains on course for restrictions to be lifted on the 21st of June. Oilseed rape? A shorter trading week saw a degree of catch-up played early on, with markets on course for three-day gains. Background narrative remains the concern for the US and South American soybean production basis weather issues. Global edible oil supplies and emergence post the pandemic of the global economy. The OPEC decided to maintain their focus on curbing production cuts, effectively pumping more oil, which the market took in its stride basis the outlook for the economy's reopening and the return of demand. Federal markets have followed with lower palm oil production, focusing attentions on the soy oil market, which has added support. Closer to home, old crop markets remain ad hoc with values discussed as and when parcels are presented. 
New crop markets have reluctantly followed futures markets higher, driven by the points above. So looking forward to prices this week, feed wheat for June 198 to 202, moving back into new crop August 171 to 173, November 175 to 177, February 178 to 181 and May 180 to 183. Milling wheat premiums are circa 18 to 20 pounds for new crop. Feed barley for August 155 to 157, November 159 to 161, February 161 to 163 and May 163 to 165. Malting premiums for new crop are circa 20 pounds for a 185 nitrogen. Looking forward to all seed rate, July, August off the combine, 440 to 442. November, 448 to 450. February, 451 to 454. And May, 454 to 457. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kit. That's Kit Dickinson from Openfield, available at openfield.co.uk. So we've had some lovely sunshine over the last week or so. Is it set to continue? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, a standard British week, yes and no. A mixed week with sunshine, gentle breezes and a few light showers forecast, including this afternoon, calm with highs of 19 Celsius for the rest of Sunday. Cooler and cloudier tomorrow, again light southerly breezes and rain showers possible pretty much all day, highs of 16 Celsius. A little warmer on Tuesday with temperatures back up to around 20 Celsius, calm with sunshine and showers and a drier end to the week, although we could still see some light showers. The wind stays light, mostly southwesterly, partly cloudy but with sunny spells and highs in the bottom 20s. Well, that's it for this week. I've got a week off now, so it'll be Ellie Codling next Sunday and she'll be talking to Rise Home College about plans for the new academic year and the CLA about their upcoming water strategy webinar. In the meantime, have a good week on the farm.